How do we respond to pain when we don't know why we're having pain? Last week we looked at the story of Job and the first two chapters of Job when Job encounters incredible pain. The loss of his children, the loss of his financial stability, the loss of his servants, the loss of his livestock, the loss of his standing in the community. And then finally he loses his own health. All because Satan wants to test Job to find out, is your faith in God simply because God has blessed you? Or some other reason. If I inflict on you great pain, great suffering, are you going to remain faithful to God? And Job doesn't know that that is why these things were happening to him. All he knows is that everything he has in an instant has been taken away. When we encounter that kind of pain in life, how do we respond to it? As we continue looking at the story of Job, we see three different responses as we move through the story of Job. Two of those responses are from individuals who were not enduring all of the things that Job was enduring. We see a response from his wife. We see a response from his friends. And we see a response from Job himself. And as we look at these, we can see how we might blame God. We see how we might show empathy to others who are suffering. And we see in Job's own response a question of why would I even be born if this is what my life is going to come to. And sometimes when we encounter immense pain, that is what is in our mind. Why is God even allowing me to have life if this is all my life is going to be? If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Job chapter 2, and let's look at these three responses to pain in these three individuals or in these folks who are experiencing or witnessing Job experience this suffering. Notice, first of all, where we left off last week in Job chapter 2, verse 9, how Job's wife responds to Job. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. We look at the story of Job and we think of it as Job's story. And yet all the things that were happening to Job were also happening to Job's wife, weren't they? With the exception of, His poor health. And I guess she was experiencing that too, because I imagine she probably had a hand in caring for Job as he suffered with the sudden loss of his health, with the boils on his skin. Some women claim that their husbands are big babies. 
I don't know if Job was a big baby or not. But his wife was experiencing that along with him as he suffered. And her response to the suffering was, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just go ahead and kick your integrity to the curb and just curse God and die? Get it done with. And this is an interesting response from Job's wife. Because she recognizes the existence and the authority of God. She's not claiming that God does not exist. She's not claiming, well, maybe God doesn't really exist because this is happening to you. She looks at God, she acknowledges God, and she says, Job, curse God and die. In that statement, she is making a statement that by cursing God, abusing God's authority, rebelling against God's authority, will result in Job dying, and he'll have relief from that pain. He'll have relief from that sorrow that he's enduring. And so she at least recognizes God's authority and God's existence. But in doing so, she's turning a hostile eye towards God. She says, Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? She's prodding Job to abandon God. Now remember, Satan's original statement to God, as you look in chapter 1, I believe it's verse 12, is, does God, does Job, is Job faithful for nothing? You've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him with all these things. But if you take those things away from him, he's no longer going to be faithful. The test that Job is enduring and his wife, really, alongside of him, is one of his integrity. Are you only faithful to God because you have good things from God? Why do you hold on to that integrity, she asks Job. Curse God and die. Deny God and die. And sometimes as we face suffering and as we face pain, one response that we can have to that is to look at God with a hostile eye. To have a hostile view of God. To blame God for what is happening to us. And there's different ways that we can blame God. And be angry with God. When tragedy strikes. When we encounter crises in life. We can look at God and say, well, God is a mean, cruel God. Look at what He's doing to me. And we can become angry with God in that sense. And then that anger in God then prompts us to say, if that's the way God's going to be, I don't want anything to do with God. Why would He do this to me? Why would He do this to a person that I love? Why would He do this to a good person? And so there are some who once lived their lives with great faith and great love for God, but when hardships come, the burden of that hardship, the pressure of that hardship hardship is so great that they turn away from God. And that's what Job's wife is asking him to do, or prodding him to do. Whether or not she's playing 
uh, along with Satan, whether or not Satan is tempting her to say these things uh, to Job or not, she's playing into Satan's hands. That's exactly what Satan wants Job to do. He wants to tear Job away from his relationship with God. And so Job chastises his wife here. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Men, don't ever say that to your wife. It probably won't be good for you. But Job says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Should we accept only the good things from God and not adversity? Do you notice where Job is placing the responsibility for what he's enduring? He's acknowledging this is from God. Now remember, you and I have an advantage over Job. And that is, we've read the narrator's story of how he introduces that Satan is testing Job and that God is allowing Satan to do these things to Job as a way of testing Job's faith. Job doesn't have any of that knowledge. He just acknowledges, look, shall we take the good things that God brings into our life and not endure the bad things? Implication that God brings into our life. It's not God that is doing it. God's allowing it to happen. But it's Satan. We talked about that last week. But you see, Job's wife, her response is, deny God, have a hostile idea of God, give up on God. That was one response that we see here in the story of Job. But then there are Job's three friends. And at first, what we see in Job's three friends is the idea of empathy. And they provide for us a good example of how to encourage or be there for someone who is suffering. In the next chapter, in chapter 4, we're going to do chapter 3 as well. But as we look in chapter 4, they're going to shift. But at least right now, they have, they're on the right track. Notice chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was great. Here are Job's three friends. And if Job made friends like you and I make friends we might assume that they are in his peer group. They are people that work along the same lines as Job. They're in the same social economic status that Job is. And remember, Job is a very wealthy man with an abundance of livestock. We could assume or expect that these three men are businessmen in antiquity, with their own great herds, with their own great responsibilities, and yet these three men have made an appointment together. Did you notice that? To come to Job and to comfort him and to sympathize with him. This is a planned deal. Our friend Job is hurting. We need to go to him. We need to comfort him. Now remember, this is before Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Facebook. 
And so they don't know. They've heard what's happened to Job, but they don't really know what's happened to Job. And when they see Job, they can't believe their eyes. We read in chapter 2 that he had boils on his skin. But whatever is plaguing him is so great that they can't even recognize him. Because of how it has deformed his body. Perhaps how the lack of eating and diet has taken its toll on his body. And they mourn. And they do all the things that in antiquity people did to show that they were in a state of mourning. They tore their clothes. They threw ashes in the air. They put on sackcloth. And they wept. And then they sat with Job for seven days and seven nights. When was the last time you were hurting? And there was anguish or crises in your life and a friend came to you and just sat with you. And they spent a week with you. What kind of a friend is that? And then the text says that no one spoke a word to Job. Wouldn't that be weird to have a friend come over and visit with you for a week and not say a word? Normally that would be extremely awkward and strange. But you see, the text says they looked at his pain and saw that it was great, so they didn't say a word. They simply sat with Job. We might say they put their arms around Job and simply loved him. The text doesn't say that, but that's what we would do today. They didn't try to take away his pain. They didn't try to deny his pain. They didn't try to say, oh, Job, just toughen up. They saw how great of a struggle and turmoil he was in, and they simply sat with him to say, Job, we love you. We know you're suffering. And we're concerned for you. So many times today when we see someone struggling or someone that's hurting, we are tempted to do all the cliches. You'll get through it. This too will pass. God had a reason for it. And when we do that, what we're really doing is denying the person's right to feel pain, to suffer. Many times we say those types of things because we don't know what else to say. We feel awkward. We feel bad. And so we say those types of things many times to alleviate our own feeling bad because we're in good shape, but our buddy, well, he's hurting. Hurting. And so because of that, We feel like we have to say something. But many times, all we need to do is to be there and to love and to comfort and to help when we can. And so when we look at Job's three friends, we see a correct response in their desire to empathize with Job and to express their concern for Job and to say, Job, you are hurting and it's okay to express that hurt. And so we see a third response. And it's Job's struggle to understand why. Now last week we asked the question, why is this happening? 
And Job is, is going to look at that question a little bit more as we move into chapter 3, but he's going to ask it from the standpoint of, why do I even live if this is what my life has come to? Notice how he begins, chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God care for it, nor let light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light but have none. Let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb, or hide trouble from my eyes. Job, in these first ten verses, is essentially saying, let the day be cursed so that it doesn't appear on the calendar. Look at verse 6. Let it not even appear on the calendar. He says at the end of verse 6, let it not come into the number of the months. In the original Hebrew, there are scholars who argue that he is actually saying a curse. If he could curse using witchcraft or magic to take away the day, he would use it so that that day would not appear on the calendar. It would not have an existence. Either the day that he was born or the day that he was conceived. He doesn't care which one, take them both out of the calendar. Because if that day never existed, then I would never have been conceived or I would have never been born and then I would not have this suffering It would have been better if I would have never been born, if all my life was going to be was this suffering. Now, folks, Job has had a good life. He's had great wealth. He's had great family. But the amount of pain that he's going through right now is so great that in his mind, that is his life. And if this is what life is about, it's better not to have ever lived. And Job takes it one step further by asking the question, why does God allow people to continue to have life if this is all that life is about? Notice verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me and the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be, as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voices of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there And the slave is free from his master. Why? Look at verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find their grave? Verse 23. 
Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Job is turning to a dark place here when he says, Why does God allow a person to be born? Why does God allow a person to live if all his life is going to come to is such great, immense pain and suffering? He says, It would be better if I had been a stillborn child, if I had been a miscarriage, because at least then I would go to a place where there is resting, a place where it didn't matter if you were a great king or a slave. You are now at rest. If you were a great king and you had great treasure, it doesn't matter. Those things are done away with. You're at rest. If you were a slave and you had a cruel taskmaster, you could find escape. You could find relief in death. And Job is saying it would be better to have that death and find that rest than it would be to have a life full of pain and suffering. Job comes to terms with the fact that he has suffering. Verse 24, For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, I am not quiet, and I am not at rest. But my turmoil comes. My suffering is so great, I wish I was simply dead so that I could escape this suffering. Job is not asking or contemplating suicide. What he's asking is, why would God give me life if my life was going to be so full of suffering and pain? Did you notice the irony in this passage? When Job says in verse 23, God has hedged me in, as we look back in chapter 1, the thing that Satan says to God is you have put a hedge around Job. Satan says the only reason that Job is faithful to you is because you have put a hedge, a fence, a wall of protection to prevent bad things from happening to Job. But now that bad things are happening to Job, Job looks at that hedge, that fence, as a way to contain him, as a way to force him to continue to have suffering. And Job's response to the suffering at this point is a struggle to understand why do you let suffering happen? Wouldn't it be better just to let someone not have life than to let them have life and that life be full of pain? And sometimes as we suffer, sometimes as we encounter immense pain, we want to know what is it all for? Why is it that we are suffering this way? As we look at the story of Job, we wonder, is Job sinning by asking this question? The narrator never calls Job or identifies Job at this point as sinning by asking this question. He's struggling to understand, but he is still faithful to God. He still relies on God. He still sees God as having authority. But he's wanting to understand why, God, do you let this happen? And so sometimes as we suffer, we want to know why and understand why. 
And it's okay, as we look at the story of Job, to express the fact that we have pain and that we have suffering. And that we sometimes have agony. And so Job expresses that anguish and that agony as he continues to search for answers. As the rest of the book of Job opens up. For the next several chapters, Job is going to have a dialogue with his friends, exploring the question of why am I suffering? At this point, even though he acknowledges God and is faithful to God, he hasn't really blamed God. But he's going to come to a point in his search for understanding that he's going to have a confrontation. He wants a confrontation to God, with God, in order to say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? It's not fair. And many times that's where we're at as we suffer. How do we respond to pain? We can respond to pain in an unhealthy way as Job's wife did by saying deny God, abandon God, be hostile to God, see God as the enemy that he is. But that's not a correct response. Sometimes we can respond to pain as we witness the suffering of others by empathizing with them, wanting to show God's love to that person as much as we can by being there for them. And sometimes we respond to pain, and it's okay to respond to pain, Seeking to understand why and crying out to God, wanting to understand and wanting to find relief from that pain. Maybe you're here this morning and there is pain in your life and you want relief from that pain. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you have sin in your life and you want to get rid of that sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we have that sin in our life until we make the decision to crucify that body of sin by being united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. If you have a need this morning, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.